0: Hey there, this is Pastor Corey, and welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. After you're done listening, I invite you to connect with us at branchlife.church to make sure you're up to date with everything going on at Branch Life. Want to share what you heard today? Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this video with someone you want to encourage. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that this presentation helps you connect with Christ and challenges you to reach those around you with the good news of Jesus. just a minute, we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 happens to be one of the most awkward chapters in all the Bible. And uh, we're just going to go for it. So like is my practice, as I'm getting ready to get ready for the next sermon or the next talk, I'll often sit down and read our passage or read our chapter that we're going to be covering over the next Sunday or the next couple of Sundays. As I listen to this, and if you didn't know you could do this, you can use the Version Bible app. You can actually listen to the Bible and, and or read it at the same time. As I, as I listened to this, I got more and more uh, embarrassed that I was going to have to talk about this stuff in front of my own parents. And so uh, I recorded myself listening to this week's passage. So if you, have your, if you have your Bible, you can follow along in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll see how far we can get, or you can just listen on the screen.
1: Chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for any.
0: So, welcome to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's pray together as we get started. God, as we look into your word, give us clear direction and understanding of what you're teaching, what you would have us to do, Lord. How would you have us to live? Uh, glorify us, train us, help us to connect to you tonight through this passage. your precious name, we pray. Amen. So, we are talking about brokenness, and this chapter is about hope and healing for a broken world in our church or in some church like ours around around the country there is somebody like stephanie stephanie is a teenager who dreams of someday getting married and having a family And stephanie since the beginning of junior high has had a boyfriend or or not on and off over the last few years she just recently broke up with her most recent boyfriend And she's wondering if there's ever going to be someone who will love her. Anyone, someone who will love her for who she is and and if she'll be able to marry that person and she's constantly looking for her next boyfriend. Or maybe there's someone in one of our churches like Stephen who's a young adult trying to make his way through this world and like Stephanie he's gone in and out of relationships and he's graduated from college and he's... Interested in getting married, but he doesn't want to tie himself down. He's having fun, uh, fun playing the field and meeting different ladies and just kind of doing whatever feels right at the time. His friends tell him that sex isn't a big deal and he should live it up while he can. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking maybe, maybe there will someday be someone special. And does what I do now matter for then? There's couples like, like Ben and Jill and Ben and Jill think that they're going to get married someday, and they want to make sure that maybe they do it right. And so before getting married, they decided to pray, maybe let's live together, and we can kind of practice getting married first. And that's what all of Bill and Jen's friends are doing, and their mom and dad seem to be okay with it, grandparents not so much, but that's what they're going to try. And so they get an apartment together, and they, they start to live together before they've gotten married. There's other couples that have been married for years, and And they're living on the edge. He doesn't really think he loves her anymore and she can't stand him. She doesn't know if she can take this marriage for another day or another moment longer. And they're thinking about, if not saying out loud, the word divorce. And if it wasn't for the kids, they might have done that already. Then there's Linda, whose husband died suddenly a couple of years ago. She finds herself lonely and lost. She's a a widow. She never thought she'd be a widow. And she's asking God what she should do next. When it comes to the topic of sex, marriage, and singleness, no matter where you are in life, these are issues that touch your life every single day. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is going to have a very clear discussion on sex, marriage, and singleness. He's going to just lay it all out there and go through chapter 7 and talk about how to have marriage God's way. You see, Paul was writing as a broken man to a broken church in a broken city that was full of broken marriages. Some broken marriages right then where multiple people had been divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. Some broken marriages yet to be. What the singles were doing were going to have incredible damaging effects on their future marriages, and in a culture that didn't respect marriage and a culture that said, "Hey, eh, sex is just not that big a deal," Paul's going to write into them the answer to the questions they were asking from God's word. Why did Paul bring up the topic of broken marriages here in this time in this conversation? The answer is pretty simple. In the first line of chapter 7, in verse 1, he says, because you asked, I'm going to answer. Because you asked, I'm going to answer. See, the, the broken church, the Christians, the church full of the Stevens and the Jills and the Ben's and the marriages that they didn't know if were going to last and the widows that weren't sure what the future hold. they were asking, they were saying, how, how do we do this right? How do we we live life God's way? So the book of 1 Corinthians was written to solve ongoing problems. He was confronting bad behavior. And he was encouraging the church all the way up into this chapter to say, how do we fix bad behavior? Well, number one, we need to see what Christ says. We need to see what Christ says. So So whatever questions you have about life, about godliness, about living life God's way, step number one is always trying to find out what Christ says. Well, why does what Christ say matters? Well, this happens to be the guy who died and rose again from the dead. That's pretty incredible. He died on a cross and then he rose again from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was God in flesh. Christ, the son of God, God in flesh. The bearer of truth. The knower of all knowledge. The designer of our lives. The creator of the universe. The one who fulfills the gospel. Christ. It's his opinion that matters. It's his instructions that we should follow because... They are true. Otherwise, it's just us trying to figure out life, and it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. It's like the broken leading the broken. And Jesus said, I want to come and give you hope and healing, even for the most broken marriages. Then, once we know what Christ has said, how do we fix our behavior? Are we then willing to obey? Are we then willing to follow Christ's instructions? Now, Paul has set this up. He's kind of primed the pump all through the first six chapters. He's getting ready to kind of tell you, I'm going to tell you some things. I'm going to correct some behavior. There's some stuff that's not going right. And are you ready to listen to what Christ said? And then are you ready to do what he says? First chapter in Corinthians chapter 7, it's not a mystery chapter. It's pretty clear what Christ is saying to us through Paul. It's not one of those chapters where you go, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now, if if you're at all like me and you're reading First through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's a little bit embarrassing. There is some stuff where you have to be like, I'm not exactly sure what that means. But as soon as you start digging into it, oh yeah, yep, that's what he's saying. Yeah, and I'm having trouble reading it any other way. It's clear. So then is the question, are we ready to obey? So Paul gives in chapter 7 instructions about sex, marriage, and singleness. And we're going to boil these instructions down to one truth for each of these areas. One truth about sex, one truth about marriages, and one truth about singleness. And I just want to give them to you right off the bat, and then we'll unpack them together. Truth number one, where we find in verses one through five about sex is this. Sex is powerful and should only be used in the context of marriage. Then when he gets to marriages, he's saying, listen, marriage is two people Sacrificing to outlove and outrespect the other. We're gonna see how powerful that truth is in just a moment. And in 32 through 38, he's gonna say this singleness is a gift that gives the freedom to focus on God. These are revolutionary truths that will totally transform your everyday life if you understand that they are from God Himself and if you're willing to obey. So let's look at these three one at a time. First, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5, sex is powerful and should only be used in the context of marriage. If you want to look at this truth, I want to encourage you to look at it into two parts. Part number one, and this is is a truth in and all of itself, sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. If you have your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We covered 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in our talk back last Monday night online called Ken Christian Sue. And that's the first half of chapter 6. Well, the second part of chapter 6 is all about this truth, sex is powerful. And if you look starting in verse 18, listen to what Paul says. He says this, flee from sexual immorality and every other sin a person commits outside the body. But sexually immoral person sins against his own body, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. It's pretty intense. It's pretty specific. And he's saying to the church, listen, sex is powerful. It has a powerful, powerful, powerful draw." Later in the chapter, he's going to say, if you are burning with passion, you need to get married because of this the power of this act. This this act of sex is something that was designed by God. It's a gift that he has given humanity. And it's got all kinds of power attached to it. But in the culture of First Corinthians, they were taking this practice and they were twisting it and they were morphing it and they were using it for religious person." Uh, reasons They were using it for financial reasons. They were using it for emotional reasons. And they were manipulating the power of this one activity. And they were abusing it. They were confusing it. We have that same problem in our time today. Then you look at it in, a, in a, the second half of this truth. The, because sex is so powerful... It should only be used in the context of marriage. It should only be used in the context of marriage. This is not new instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a review. This is a rewind. You see this over and over and over in the Bible, starting all the way back in the Ten Commandments and going all the way through all of Scripture. God consistently says... Sex is powerful and should only be used in the context of marriage. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 1 through 5, he's going to say, now concerning of the matters which you wrote, because you asked, and he's going to go into this truth. He's going to start talking about a husband and wife and why and how and when they should be intimate with one another. He's saying this is designed for the marriage relationship. You see, Paul is immediately and directly and clearly addressing the problem of broken sex. He is going right after it. This was a huge problem in a broken church and in a broken city. And if you're tempted to say, hey, this is a problem for them back then, you probably know that this is a problem for us now, today. We live in an era, we live in a time, we live in a culture where sex is broken. One of the main cultural problems that we have in our city here right now, and in every city like ours, and in every country around the world, is the rampant practice of sex trafficking where young girls and and young people are are taken and taken advantage of and taken from their homes and, and they're used for profit. They're used for pleasure. And this activity is broken. And the powerful impact that that has on their lives cannot be measured. Where this activity of sex is broken and is used in an abusive way. Where... People are told that they are just objects, and if they're not told it, they're shown it. Where we live in a time where it is so much easier to look at things that we shouldn't look at. The sites on the internet, the X-rated ones, you know the ones I'm talking about? They are visited more times on a daily basis than Amazon, Twitter, and YouTube combined it's broken it's broken we live in a super sexualized culture so why do our young people have confusion about this why do our young adults struggle in these areas what's happening to to marriages that are trying to live this out in a healthy way They're broken because our culture is looking at this in a broken way. And Paul is saying, listen, God's got the answer. God's got hope and God's got healing for this kind of brokenness. And he's saying sex is a powerful thing. And it should only be used in the context of marriage. If you're a young adult, if you're a teenager, if you're single in this room. And you are being told by other people in your culture, in your world, on your television, on your computer screens, that, ah, it's just sex. It's not a big deal. Oh, everybody else is doing it. Come on. You, You don't worry about it. Hey, it's kind of backwards to save that for marriage. You need to hear what I'm saying right now tonight. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and God himself says, no, 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 it is a big deal. It is a very, very big deal. For my entire life, I've worked with teenagers and young adults. Have we talked about these issues, we've talked about the impact, not just the physical impact that happens when you participate in premarital, premarital sex, but the emotional impact that takes place. When you do something and you participate in something that has been designed for marriage, you are emotionally connecting yourself in ways that are not supposed to be done in a non-married setting. It's not something that can just be ignored or overlooked or said, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. So in Proverbs, the, the, the writer says, wisdom says, hey, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Do everything that you can to guard yourself. And the Bible says over and over and over again, guard your purity." Guard your purity in every way possible. And understand this, you are living in a day and a time and a culture where it is extremely difficult to guard your heart and to guard your purity. But in the book of Job, Job says, I will let no unclean thing go before my eyes. I will decide now, in this moment, in this time, and in this place, that what God says is true and sex is powerful... And it should only be done in the context of marriage. We live in a super-sexualized culture. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two, when I was born in 1978, of all the 18-year-olds through 34-year-olds in the world, 60% of them were married in 1978. Now, just 41 short years later in this one, in 19, or 40 years later in 2018, that same age bracket, the percentage is cut in half. Only 30% are married. I'm not saying that to say that that's a problem. I'm just saying that this is a cultural reality. In our culture, we wait longer to get married than ever before. As a matter of fact, in Bible times, they got most people got married even younger than that. In other cultures around the world, people get married at younger ages. But in America today, we wait well into our late 20s and early 30s to get married. And that's the norm. That's considered regular. Now, if you have an equation, super sexualized culture, and waiting later to get married, do you think there's going to be a brokenness attached to sex? Yeah. It gets really, really hard. So in this area, Christians are asked to live in a counter-cultural way. This is a way that Christians are really weird. If you're a Christian, you already know you're weird. You already know that you're strange. When it comes to this stuff, when it comes to attitudes about sex, when it comes to attitudes about marriage, yeah, we're weird. We're countercultural. We believe in things like abstinence before marriage. That's strange to people. That's cuckoo nuts. We believe in not moving in together but waiting until after you're married, to move in together. What? I don't What age do you live in? This is a way that Christians are unique, and this is also how they were unique in Bible times. This caused Christianity to stand out. This caused people to look at the church and say, you're teaching what? You're waiting for when? You're not going to do, huh? Why? Why? Why would you do that? And Christian would be able to say, because I believe in the gospel. Because I believe in someone named Jesus who died and rose again on the cross, who gave us truth and has designed us to live in the most amazing way. And I believe that Jesus' way is the best way. And that when we follow Jesus' instructions for yes, even something like sex, when we follow Jesus' instructions for marriage, when we follow Jesus' instructions for singleness, we will then get to live the best life possible. And even though it's countercultural, and someone's going to say it's weird, it's awesome to follow Jesus' way. It is amazing. It is way better than doing something the world's way. You got to test me on this. You've got to test God's word on this. Are you willing when Jesus says it to obey it and live in a countercultural way? Now as we go through these different truths and we talk through these different lessons, wherever you find yourself in the struggle, in the battle, in the pursuit, I want to encourage you this night We're not trying to shame anybody. We're not trying to challenge anybody. We're not trying to rebuke or correct anybody specifically. We're just saying this is what the Bible says. Now you take to heart what your next steps are. And wherever you are tonight, God can be your confidence for tomorrow. And you can choose tonight to live life God's way and just obey and see what he does. Test him in this. But Christians, we are countercultural. You've probably heard of the Jonas Brothers, right? They've written some songs. They're pretty popular songs. They're a pretty popular band. The Jonas Brothers, the three of them, were all pastor's kids, were all pastor's kids. Their dad was a pastor. And one of the things that the Jonas Brothers get made fun of today, to this day, was the fact that when they started as teenagers and young adults singing for Disney, that they wore purity rings. They wore these purity rings and people would ask them, news people would ask them about the rings and they would say what they are and they were purity rings. And the general consensus of everybody interviewing them or talking about them wasn't, hey, attaboy, good job, guys. Keep it up, we're proud of you. Nope, pretty much everyone said, a purity what, what? You're doing, huh? You're saving yourself for when? But you're a rock star. You you shouldn't have to Really? And the culture just couldn't understand that there were people that actually were pursuing purity. When we live this way, people are going to go, you're doing what? You're not going to, huh? You're waiting for when? And just know that it's okay to be different in this area. So what do we do? Well, here's your options for sex. If you're unmarried, your option is abstinence. That's it. That's the option. That's the truth. It's clear. It is what God is saying in this. In every way, attacking your purity and doing everything possible to protect your purity. And if looking at stuff on the internet's a problem for you, you've got to stop it. You've got to go after it. You've got to change it. You've got to do some things, and we'd be delighted to help you with those things. If abstinence hasn't been your practice and you're single, it starts today. And you need to say, hey, this is God's way. And if you're a young person in here, whether you're high school, young adult in your single years, just know that God will bless, and it is the right way to even make this commitment in this moment to say, you know what, this is my only option, and that's what I'm going for. Now, if you're married, your option is not abstinence. There's a bunch of uh, uh, husbands that just started taking notes. He said, "Option, not abstinence." Hey, option, not abstinence. Look at my notes. It says, "Not abstinence." That's true. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 5, there is a strong encouragement to not be abstinent if you're a husband and wife. And so if, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, if that's an issue for you guys, something's broken. Something's broken. And the only reason to be abstinent in a marriage, the only thing more important was this. Prayer. Prayer. Remember, we said that prayer is is powerful and prayer is important. God even acknowledges the importance of prayer in this discussion of healthy marriages. So if you don't have your prayer book, get one of these before you leave today. The second truth that they cover in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the area specifically of broken marriages. So starting in verse 4 and running through the middle of the chapter, if we sum up the truth this way. This is what Paul is saying about marriage. He's saying marriage is two people sacrificing to out-love and to out-respect the other. Marriage is two people sacrificing to out-love and out-respect the other. First Corinthians, again, this this is a chapter where Paul is addressing some problems. He's writing to answer a specific question. And the question that was coming up in the culture was sex is so broken that everything is not going right Should we just stop and not do it at all? Should we just totally stay away from it? And Paul's going to answer the question. He's going to say, yeah, you're going to stay away from it if you're single. But if you're married, it's something that you should be involved in on a regular basis. And as he's having that discussion, he is then going to address broken marriages. He's going to address it from a critical point of view. This is not the chapter that teaches us everything about marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes into a broader discussion about healthy marriages and what they look like. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 32 and 33, he's going to sum up that discussion by saying, husbands, you have got to love your wife. He's going to give you that strong instruction. And then wives, he's going to say, you have got to respect your husband. And it's one of the most fascinating verses in the Bible because he didn't use the same word in the instructions to wives that he did for husbands. Husbands, he said love. Wives, he said respect. Why did he say that? Why did he do that? The explanation that most resonates and what I think is going on is he knew that it is natural for a wife to be good at love. Gals, you just get the love thing. You understand how to love and how to give of yourself and how to sacrifice and how to adore. You just have that down naturally. Gals speak the language of love. Guys speak the language of respect. We kind of get the pecking order of things. We kind of get the hierarchy and and we want to be able to treat people and and speak in a right way and honor them in a right way and respect them in a right way. It's kind of how guys are are, are, are wired. We're wired with respect. So he knew that gals would struggle with respect, and guys, you struggle with love. But that's the language that the other speaks. So if you really want to be countercultural, if you really want to go for a healthy marriage, he was telling us that gals, you got to get good at respecting, because that's what your husband understands. And guys, you got to get good at love, because that is what your wife understands. And he said, a marriage... And this is what he talks about in the beginning of verse of chapter 7. Your body's not your own, wives. It's your husband's. Husbands, your body's not your own. It's your wives. When you are married to someone else, you now have the opportunity to sacrifice yourself, to give of yourself, to drain yourself, to give everything that you possibly have, to out-love or out-respect the other person. A marriage is a battle, but it's not the battle for your own happiness. It's the battle for the happiness of the other. It's the battle for the holiness of the other. And we want to go to battle to outpace, outlove, and outrespect our spouse. When you are thinking about how you can love your spouse better than she loves you, how you can respect your husband better than he respects you, you are going to have a crazy, awesome marriage. You're going to be able to live counterculturally in this way. So many people are looking for their spouse to meet their needs. They're looking to their spouse to make them happy, to make them holy. They're looking to their spouse to fill their days and to provide for them, to feed them the right meal at night. They're looking for their spouse to take care of their kids and to make their future brighter. That is not the role of your spouse. That is the role of your God. We look to God to complete us. God has given us a spouse so we can serve them. So we can love them. And so we can respect them. That's why the church exists in this world. So that we can serve others and not get. And when you are able to say, I love, truly love, agape love, self-sacrificing, give of myself love. My spouse, your marriage will be healthier than it has ever been before. I wish I was good at outloving my spouse, but she beats me all the time. She crushes me in this area. I can't even try to keep up. My wife is the most selfless person that I know. She will go from the moment she wakes up until the moment she puts her exhausted head on the table to love and to serve me. To love and to serve our kids. To love and to serve our church. To love and to serve our neighbors and our community. And she is good at it and she never complains about it. And I just can't believe how blessed I am. And I hope that there is a day that I will outlove her. I hope that there is a day that I can be less selfish than I usually am. I hope that there is a day that I can recognize the amount of work that she does on a daily basis to allow our lives to happen and I can just step in and lift a little bit of that burden for her. But man, she's amazing and I'm lucky. Would your spouse describe you that way? Are you able to out love and out respect your spouse? So in this chapter, When he's instructing us about love, he's going to say three things. Number one, in verses four and five, abstinence indicates a problem. For a Christian marriage, abstinence indicates a problem. And if you're going through an extended period of time in your marriage where you're abstinent, then something's wrong. Something's significantly wrong. And that can be a barometer of, hey, we need to talk. We need to fix something. We need to get help. We need to confess some things. And go through the practice of trying to get to the place where, yes, we can participate in this powerful thing that God has designed for every marriage. And it can be special and sweet. And yeah, guys, you probably took notes down earlier where you said abstinence is not an option. Well, abstinence might not be an option because you're the problem. Oh, the wives just started writing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they may not be wrong. But listen to this. If you're pursuing out loving and out respecting your wives. Wives if you're pursuing out loving and out respecting your husbands. Abstinence will not be a problem. Abstinence will not be a problem. In the second area he says in verses 10 to 11. He says divorce is not an option. I'll read it for you just so you know I'm not making this up. In verse 10 he says to the married I give this charge. Not I but the Lord. So he's saying, I'm speaking for the Lord. In other words, you already know this. You've already heard this. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. That's it. He doesn't he doesn't say anything else. I, I, I need a little bit more there. I'm reading this and I'm like, wait a minute, Paul. Hold the phone. I've got some questions. What about when? What about if? Like, what, are you saying never it's not an option? Listen, if you're like me, you've probably got a thousand questions about this. But the readers in 1 Corinthians who were following God's word, to them it was assumed that it was already taught that divorce is not an option. Here's the countercultural reality of where we live today. For so many couples, divorce is way too soon an option. Divorce is the thing that we pursue and the thing that we run run for. So let me say this, and I'm very confident in this statement. There is always a better option than divorce. There's always a better option than divorce when you are a married Christian. Again, tonight we don't want to guilt anybody. We know that all of us have been touched by divorce in some way, shape, or form in our lives, and our family lives, some of us here have been divorced, some of us here have been remarried. And again, we're not saying to say anything was terrible or wrong or awful in your past, but wherever you are today, honor God today and through the rest of your lives to do whatever he says to do. If you're like me, you've got some more questions, and we don't have enough time to go into this, so tomorrow night in our Facebook Live, that's probably better to talk about this with everybody on the internet than here tonight. We're going to do five questions about divorce, and uh, we'll see what God says about them. And yes, there is more to the discussion than what we're able to cover here tonight. But what do we do? The decision about divorce should be made before you're married, not when marriage hurts. So again, I'm talking to singles. I'm talking to those of you that have healthy marriages. You should make this decision before you get married because there will be a time when marriage hurts and it hurts really bad. That's not the time to consider whether or not divorce is an option. But when we say whatever comes with God's help, my God is able, I'm able to trust him for the salvation of my soul. Can I trust him for the restoration of my marriage? If your answer is yes, yes, and yes, Then no matter what comes, God can heal your marriage. There is a better option than divorce. What about abuse? What about situations where safety is in danger? What about times where your spouse is wrong and they are dead wrong? That's why God has given you the church. Yes, you need to be safe. Yes, you need to get help. Yes, you may even need to get out, but don't do that apart. From your church if you are a married Christian there is nothing that makes me more upset than abuse nothing that makes me more mad nothing that may make me to do something that I probably shouldn't do as a Christian pastor than to find out that there is some man abusing some woman who he's supposed to love whether it's emotional physical or verbal men don't even go there and if you're going there there's going to be some real and serious consequences but women know that you can be heard and you can be protected and you can be sheltered in God's name with the help of the church. So the decision about divorce should be made before you are married. Then he gives a third guideline, and this is one of the coolest things in the whole chapter as far as I'm concerned. In chapters 12, verse 16, he said, Godliness helps everyone close by. I wish we had more time to, to ha- hash this out, but we don't tonight as our time is going away from us. But you see this discussion about a married Christian staying with a non non uh, staying with their non-saved spouse, and at the end of it, they say you should stay if the marriage is going right and if they're willing to stay together. You should stay together because you will help the holiness of your spouse and your kids. And that's a confusing statement, but this is what he is saying: husband or wife, if you're saved and you're the only saved person in your family, your godliness has an incredible positive influence on the people around you. Your godliness allows for God's blessing to be on all the people around you, specifically the people that you love. This is not just a principle from this chapter. This is a principle that goes all the way through Scripture. Moses was having a conversation with God, and God was gonna bring wrath down on some town, and God said to Moses, or Moses said to God, God, if there's, if there's 10 people here in this place who love you and follow you, will you spare the town? And God said, yes, if there's 10, I will spare the town. And Moses said, what if there's five? If there are five, will you spare the town? He said, yes, yes, if there's five. What if there's one? If there's one, will you spare the town? Yes, Moses, I will spare the town that deserves to be punished for the sake of one godly person. You represent that godly person in your home, even if you are the only one who believes. Nehemiah built a wall and a few godly people came in and as a result of a few godly people doing what God wanted wanted them to do, a whole nation was blessed. Daniel loved God and he prayed three times a day in an empire that did not love God and because Daniel was a part of that empire, God blessed that empire through Daniel. One godly person has an impact on the, 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 the people around them. We believe this at Branch Life Church. The stronger our connection to God, the farther our reach and the more fruit that we bear, and it helps provide shade, shelter, and sustenance to our town and our neighborhood. Man, when you live for God, when you live in a countercultural way, it blesses the people around you even though they don't believe in God themselves. That's awesome. That is awesome. So if you're in a marriage where there are, your spouse doesn't believe in God, hold on and do everything you can to love God and to out-love and out-respect your spouse. And who knows what will happen in the future? Don't try to escape it and get out of it. And your godliness will bless your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, and your town. So in the next 24 hours, those of you that are married, in the next 48 hours, what can you do to out-love or out-respect your spouse? I want you to give yourself a homework assignment. There is something that you can do to show your spouse some love. Yeah, but I'm mad at him. You need to write two homework assignments. She doesn't deserve it. You need to write three homework assignments. This is not deserved or undeserved. This is self-sacrificing. Give of yourself to out-love or out-respect your spouse. Ask God tonight before you leave to show you something you can do by the end of the day Tuesday to out-love your spouse. And then just do it again in the next 48 hours, in the next 48 hours, and see what happens. And finally, with broken singleness, and we'll end with this discussion, he says this in verse 32, verse 38. Singleness is a gift that gives the freedom to focus on God. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven and verse seven, he says, I wish Paul that all were as myself am. Paul was a single, unmarried man. So Paul was saying, I wish that everyone was single like me, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. Did you know that being married is a gift from God? Isn't that awesome? The wife just elbowed the husband. I am your gift. They're not wrong. Being married is a gift from God. It's incredible. It's amazing. And God has given you that gift. That's what Paul calls it in verse 7. Did you know that being single is a gift from God? Wait, what? Yes. Being single is a gift from God. And Paul's going to argue that it might even be a greater gift to be single. So many times those of us that that have been single or are single or have found ourselves single after being married, we look at our married counterparts and we say, I wish I had what they have. I wish I had that spouse. I wish I had kids. I wish I had a family like they have a family. And we are constantly breaking the 10th commandment that says thou shalt not covet and want what somebody else has. When God is saying, and Paul is saying, listen, singleness is a gift. And tonight, this may be the thing, single, that you need to hear. Teenager, young adult, widow, divorcee. You may need to hear in this moment, in this time, that singleness is a gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, but he who refrains from marrying will do even better. Paul does not have a low view of marriage. Paul has a high view of singleness. And just think about it. God used a single man to transform the world. Paul could not have done what he did being married. He would have had responsibilities to his spouse and to his kids, to his family. He would have had to worry about them. He would have had to provide for them. He would have had to make sure that they were cared for in every way, shape, or form. But because he did not have those responsibilities, he had the freedom to have a 100% focus on serving God, and that is exactly what he did. In your singleness, you have the opportunity and the gift to go 100% in on serving God, distraction free. Singles, what can you do for the Lord that your married counterparts cannot? What an awesome, awesome question! You can help plan a church. You can help build a church. You can help reach people. You can serve in ways that they can't serve. You can go places where other people can't go. You can give in ways that other people can't give. I think of Brad and I think of Candace, two of our young adults, totally single, right? Not married. And they've given up nine weeks, six months to travel the country and see people come to Christ. And every week we get reports from Brad and Candace that they are helping people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ because they are able to travel the country and spread the good news of the gospel in their single years. That is what they are doing. I think of my, grandma, my grandmother, my mother-in-law, Linda. Seven years ago, suddenly we lost my father-in-law after a few days after Christmas in his early 60s. And my mother-in-law found herself single She's now a widow. I, have, I, I am just amazed at what she does for the Lord during this season of her life. She's single. She's all by herself. And she's, instead of, of, of just sitting and being sorry for where she finds herself, she is one of the most active believers in her church. She serves each and every week helping with young, young kids. Kids, kids' choirs, kids' nurseries. She goes to the church office every stinking week and she helps them with their accounting and their bookkeeping. She does things as uh, to go and, and make meals for people on a regular basis and to serve and to visit. She goes to her neighbors regularly in her neighborhood checking up on them. Why? Because she can. And the ministry that she has is so powerful in these single years. We live in a time where it's it's. Finally, more people are single than are married. Over 50% of the people in our culture are single. Think about the opportunities that that gives to serve the Lord. So singles, what do you do? Teenagers, young adults, thank God for your singleness and seek out how you can uniquely serve him during this season. I like to say it like this. I heard this when I was young and I've never forgot it. Don't look for the right one, be the right one, and God will give you the right one in the right time. And do whatever you can do to serve God now. So what did you need to hear tonight? What's the message that God gave to you? Pastor Bill encouraged us to be in prayer. He encouraged you to share your prayer requests with him. And one way you can do that is you can fill out these cards and the pastors will pray over the prayer requests that you have. But would you respond on these cards tonight? And is there something that God has encouraged you with? Do you need to give yourself a homework assignment? And Do you need us to pray for it? Do you need to confess something? Do you need to get counsel on something? Tonight, if you're here and you need to continue in a spirit of prayer after the service is over, we're going to have prayer counselors in the front, and we want to encourage you to come pray with them. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you are going through a time where you are not thankful for your singleness. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but tonight you want to believe in God who makes life, sex, marriage, and singleness awesome. Tonight we wanna to invite you to make those decisions and maybe there's something going on that has nothing to do with any of those things. You just need to pray with somebody. That's what our prayer team is gonna be here for after the service and we wanna encourage you to do that. So I'm gonna invite Rob and the worship team to come out after we pray and these are the areas that we talked about tonight. As you respond on your cars and you have a moment of reflection, ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you can strengthen your connection to Christ in one or more of these areas. Dear God and Heavenly Father, As we look at Corinthians chapter seven, Lord, we we thank you for the clear instructions that you give. And God, we pray that you would show us specifically how to obey you and how to live counterculturally counterculturally in this world. God, that you would allow us to have strong marriages. Lord, that you would give us victory uh, over temptation. And God, that you would direct us to be an example, to be salt and light in the world. God, that you would use our godliness to be a blessing to those around us. So God, we pray for husbands in this room. We pray, Lord, that you would allow them to lead their families well. God, that they would give of themselves to outlove their wife in every way. Lord, we pray for wives. We pray, God, that you would give them strength. God, that you would you would allow them to know how loved they are and how appreciative we are for them. God, would you be with our wives at Branch Life Church and help them to self-sacrificially out-respect their husband? God, we pray for those that are single. God, those that are are longing to have a family, longing to have a marriage someday in this season, wherever they find themselves in their singleness, Lord, God, will you powerfully show them the unique opportunity that they have to serve you. And God, that they would be able to see this season and this time and this singleness as truly a gift from you. And Lord, that you would allow us to have that contentment in spirit that's honoring to you. For our teenagers, God, that are in a world that's super sexualized, Lord, will you protect them God, will you give them wisdom? Will you help them even now to make commitments about their purity that that will be able to be celebrated at their weddings? And Lord, we pray, God, that we would honor you in these areas of sex, marriage, and singleness. And God, that it would be a joy for us to follow your instructions in these areas. In your precious name, we pray.